Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty and social justice issues. And I have a special guest today that I really wanted for a long time and privileged to have, Brother Andre Waller. Elder Waller, thank you so much for being in our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a little nervous. I don't know what you're going to do to me on this podcast, but I think we'll be all right. We're friends, aren't we? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we are friends. So, Elder Waller, can you tell us a little bit about your ministry? All right. Well, I am the director of a ministry called Tacoa Missions. It's a missionary training school that we have in uh, Newport, New Hampshire. We train people how to do medical missionary work and teach them how to preach, teach, how to set up their own businesses and own ministries as well. And recently we've just introduced a naturopathic training component of our our program. So now young people can leave with, with a kind of a direction and a career line in medical missionary work and open up their own practices and things like that. So we're kind of we're very excited about that and looking forward to this new year coming starting October the 8th. Now, in the New England area, what is the ethnic composition mainly in your area? Well, I live in New Hampshire. Um, based on what I have seen, as far as if, if you don't know, I'm a black man, so we're looking at 0.6% of black people live in New Hampshire. And where I live, technically, we're probably the only black couple black people in town, <laughs> which is okay. Have no problem with that. Um, we have good neighbors, good friends uh, that live in the area and community. So, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a very interesting community. And uh, there are some learning curves, though, no question. The popular narrative in the media at this time is that we're having wide racial problems. And it seems that there's more intolerance in society. How are you able to minister in the midst of this perceived intolerance in America today? All right. Well, personally, I'm just going to say from the very beginning that I believe that the narrative that is being put forward is not a narrative that I buy into completely. I think the narrative that is being put forward is actually accentuating a problem in a particular area. So we have problems all across the board, whether it's black with white or whether it's poor with rich, whether it's Republican or Democrat. I think the issues that are being put forth are non-remedial in nature and really are exasperating the issues of the corrupt heart uh, as I see it. That's just that's where I stand at this moment. Where do you think we are prophetically as a nation today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what do I think we are prophetically as a nation today? I see us as a nation, we are definitely fulfilling Bible prophecy. So I see us as the sole superpower. If you look at what's happening in our world today, there is no nation, no single nation that has more influence or more power in this world than our United States of America. And if you look at Revelation chapter 13, and you look at the position that the United States will hold in the prophetic line of, of prophecy, um, we are without question in that position. And to be honest with you, I do see a very strong push from the Christian world to be engaged in politics like I've never seen it before. And what, that causes me a little bit of concern, well, not a little bit, a lot of concern, not even a concern, because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. So prophecy tells us that there was going to be an image made to the beast. We know that the beast in Revelation chapter 13 was a union of church and state. And we see now that the church, because it lacks spiritual power, and I say the church, I'm talking about the church, Christian church at large. 
Because the Christian church at large lacks spiritual power, we're seeking to go to the state to enforce our ideas, our dogmas, and our decrees. In doing that, we are denying a higher power, which is the kingdom of heaven, where Christ is in the most holy place, willing to give power to his church on this earth right now here today. So you asked me that question, where do we see ourselves, uh, the United States and, and Bible prophecy, where we're at? We're at a position, as far as I'm concerned, where prophecy is, the table is set, the stage is set. Uh, the question is whether or not God's people are going to come in line what God is doing in the heavenly places. Again, we have been warned as Christendom not to engage or try to establish righteousness through the laws of this country. Now, somebody might say, you know, Andre, you are being extreme. You know, we need to put, you know, righteous people in positions of power, so forth and so on. I don't have a problem with people wanting to put righteous people in positions of power. But if you're doing that with the idea that this is God's plan for the establishment of his eternal kingdom or the establishment of righteousness altogether, then this is where I would have an issue uh, with you or anyone else that, you know, kind of takes that position. So, yeah, we're in a very interesting spot, a very dangerous spot, because when we see church and state unite, there's always persecution that comes behind it. Yesterday I met a young person who is active in politics, mm. and he is active in politics with the religious right, the Christian religious right. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. Okay. And he thinks and believes that partnering with the religious right is a good thing in maintaining morality of the nation, mm. in addressing issues of LGBT intolerance or abortion, and so on and so forth. What do you think of that position? And he cited, for example, um, the Adventist Church openly voicing their opposition against the fugitive slaves laws of the 1850s and the abolition movement and so on and so forth, that Adventists have a moral duty to be involved in political matters to make sure society is moral. So what do you think of that stance? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. And you're asking me what I think. Uh, the only thing I can really double back on is the example of Jesus. Okay, so when Jesus came to this earth, his great solution to the ills of mankind was the revelation of the character of his father. If there would have been a great politician, um, the greatest politician in the world would have been Jesus Christ. He could have taken the great multitude itself and established himself as king but he chose not political means to, uh, to accomplish the heavenly mission that God had placed upon him. The uniqueness regarding Adventism and the uniqueness regarding our calling makes us have to take a different stance. If you're a Christian or someone else who doesn't really understand prophetic lines or you have not been separated by the three angels' messages from the core of the world, separated to God himself, my heart kind of can go to that place. But if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, then it's impossible to establish that position from the Bible and spirit of prophecy to think that we will solve the ills of society by using civil powers. Um, this is where we come up against an issue. Now, can we have a voice in you know, certain laws that come into our state regarding alcohol or different things like this? Sure, why not? That's not a big deal. The issue that we need to deal with more than any other. In other words, what supersedes any political activism is the message of the third angel in Revelation chapter 14. 
this idea supersedes all other ideas and it is the ultimate solution to every problem that is in this world. The king of the universe, Jesus Christ the righteous, must come and establish his kingdom. And right now he is in position or in uh, he's in a place where he is setting up his eternal kingdom by selecting subjects to be part of that kingdom. And there's a lot more I can say to that. There's a whole Bible study we can go into that. I would challenge that young man to reconnect with his identity as a Seventh-day Adventist. Yes, so there were political actions that were taken in the past, but it's never been the number one focus of the Advent movement. Now on the other side of the political spectrum, we have some of our church entities being involved in social justice issues. Social justice is a big buzzword Mm -hmm. in our colleges and our universities and being involved in the situations of immigration and the separation of families and, and gun control. What is the social justice that Adventists should be involved in? Brother Peter, you're trying to get me in trouble with people, and I, I don't mind getting in trouble, I guess. Uh, we'll get in trouble together. Is that what it is? <laughs> getting me in trouble together, huh? The word social justice carries a lot of baggage with it. So what I prefer to function under is Isaiah 58. Okay, so Isaiah 58 talks about loosing the bands of wickedness, letting the oppressed go free. Um, Under the monicum, that the righteousness of Christ would be that which surrounds the activities of God's people. Not for any political uh, side. So the Democrats are not more loving than the Republicans, and Republicans more loving than the Democrats. These taglines that people have over these phraseologies cause me not to want to engage with those taglines. But if we're talking about helping the poor, let's go do it. Because that's a reflection of the medical missionary work. If we're talking about helping those immigrants who come into our country who have needs, no question, that's what we should be about. But in no way, shape, or form are we, as as far as I'm concerned, going to posit myself against the President of the United States or or posit myself against uh, what they call social justice warriors, we have nothing to do with these earthly monicums that are there. Our objective has already been clearly given from heaven itself. So we're Isaiah 58. There's no social justice warrior on my side. Jesus is the greatest social justice king. And unless he establishes his kingdom, all of our outreaches, whether... And again, it's very interesting. If you read First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, it says, If you give your body to be burned and have not love, it profits you nothing. If you give your food to feed the poor and you have not love, it profits you nothing. And at the end of the day, some of these movements are self-serving, not necessarily. Uh, it's almost like Judas. Judas said to, to uh, Mary, this 300 pence could have been given to the poor. He was a social justice warrior. But what was really happening was there was a siphoning off of funds to benefit himself. And again, the actions that are being taken on all sides, the purest motives of all can only be had if Christ is the center of all of our actions, if he's the motivation for all that we're doing. Hatred for one political party or the other is not the way or or the method that heaven has ordained for this work to go forward. So I'm all about Isaiah 58. I'm all about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm all about reflecting the love of Jesus and our actions and helping other people, but ultimately with the establishment of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
the reason why I asked that question is because um, as I monitor social media, even professors of the have written very bluntly, even to me and personally, about their stances that Muslims are evil, immigrants that are undocumented should be reported to the authorities and taken back to their countries, and that they would pray for them while they're being taken back to their countries and whatnot. What do you think of this growing spirit among Adventism in this type of thinking? You know, Peter, I've never actually come across anyone that has said that or done that. Um, if I were to meet someone of that nature or that ilk, first and foremost, I'll just say this. Generally speaking, you know, I'm speaking very broadly, I can understand where someone wants to maintain law, meaning if we don't have law, we don't have a border, then we, we are porous. We really don't have a nation. And I understand that. Um, and I also understand that we are to be a, a kind people and a loving people. And so there's this wonderful balance that would have to be, at least in my mind, if I'm talking to this person, if I were making an appeal to this person, I would appeal for balance and approach of understanding. Because a lot of times when we argue these things, we argue theoretically, never really being touched by any of it. So I can argue, so-and-so immigrant needs to go back. But what if the immigrant was your mom? You know, what if it was your uncle? Or your, you know, you wouldn't argue that way if you were touched by it. And the, what I love about Jesus, he is the ultimate immigrant, right? He came down from heaven. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He became one with us to kind of feel what we feel. And now he takes that representation back to the Father. And I think to a large degree, whether we're dealing with immigrants or whether we're dealing with a border, both concepts are right, right? Both concepts make sense. You need a border to protect and maintain a country. But at the same time, if your country is not kind and loving and tender, then your country is not a country that needs to have borders. It needs to be destroyed, you know? So it's kind of like there has to be a balance. And if brothers and sisters, again, are getting caught up in the minutia of the temperature of this world versus being the thermostat, you know, both versus being the control of, because literally we're taking our cues from the society instead of driving the discussion ourselves as a people. This is a problem in everything, whether it's we're talking about women's ordination or whether we're talking about social justice issues or whether we're talking about Me Too movement. All these things are things that are happening in the world, and now we're echoing this stuff in the church as an echo chamber instead of being the driving force in society. So we got to really reorganize how we're processing things. I think we're watching too much TV, too much Fox News, too much MSNBC, too much CBS, not enough Bible, not enough great controversy, not enough patriots and prophets, not enough time on our knees. And therefore, we're kind of just mimicking um, with how the world is, is, is trying to deal with their issues when we have the actual 100% solution. A few months ago, our attorney general asserted... Romans 13, as a means that we should obey the government okay. in response to the child separation and the border controversy that happened. Mm. What do you say to that? How should Romans 13 be applied in being loyal citizens, but yet being loyal to God? That's interesting. Um, one of the things I've learned over time is that and, and me being a leader in my small little circle of my little world, 
that people often have an opinion about me and what I do without understanding the full scope of everything, all the knowledge that's there. And so I will definitely say this. I know not what Attorney General knows. I will respect his office and his position and what he says. But in matters uh, regarding the application of the text itself, when it comes to respecting the powers that God has put in position, which, again, we should do that, if the instruction given from the powers that be go contrary to God's commandments, then without question, we should obey God rather than men. Without question, that should be done. The issue that I think that this question somewhat implies is the Bible tells us to take care of the poor and the fatherless and those, those persons that are there. Um, and I do believe that it is the responsibility of, of God's people to be aware if persons are being mistreated or not mistreated. Don't dismiss it because it's easy to, to dismiss it because it's not happening to you. But then when it's happening to you, no one's coming to your rescue type thing, right? At the same time, there is a responsibility on the side of those who are using Bible texts to justify their positions to be sure that they have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in application of whatever verses that are there. Because Satan used verses to justify his position, and Jesus used verses to justify his position. And so whether you are a common Bible-believing Christian or whether you are a leader in the government or in the church, we need to be careful of how we use the Scripture to justify our own actions. Because at the end of the day, do the scriptures have full sway over my personal life? Or am I using them as a weapon of bludgeoning people to do what I want them to do? And to, for many centuries, the Bible has been used as a means of manipulating the masses versus truly allowing the word to actually make a change in the hearts of men. You've done extensive studies on the French Revolution and Bible prophecy. Uh-oh, here we go. How do you see the application of the French Revolution here in the last days? And why is that significant for our study? All right, so the French Revolution, you'll find that prophetic outline in Revelation chapter 11. And you'll see a carryover of the principles from Revelation 11 and Revelation chapter 17. So in Revelation chapter 11, you have two witnesses. During the time of the two witnesses, they prophesied in sackcloth 1,260 days. Prophetic time, Ezekiel 4.6, Numbers 14.34, day and Bible prophecy equals a year. So you're looking at 1,260 years where the word of God, the two witnesses, and again, I don't have time to go into a deep study in regards to that, but the two witnesses are the word of God, the law and the testimony. They are the word of God. These witnesses are persecuted and prosecuted under an anti-biblical authority. And again, I don't want to be throwing names out there if there has not been a complete study on the point. But there is a power that ruled for that time frame that suppressed the scriptures and killed nearly 100 million Bible believers. And so the word of God was suppressed. It came a point now near the end of that 1,260 years that another power rose up that was anti-Bible. And for three and a half years, I mean, to a great extent, pretty much crucified the word. 
So that three and a half year time frame, we know as the French Revolution, is that great time frame, the great, the reign of terror. During that time frame, the Bible was essentially desecrated. Even cathedrals were desecrated. And, and I understand why. You know, if you look at the French Revolution, it was a response. Listen carefully. The French Revolution was a response to bad Bible. The French Revolution was a response to false teachings that people put out there about God in the Bible. And so it's a response to that, and it's saying, you know what? We don't want any gods, and we don't want any popes. That's what the French Revolution was about. No God and no popes. In that setting where there is no God and there's no popes, now the people believe that their own reason, their own logic... Their own intellect um, would be the means by which we could be great, what do you call it, the great citizens. And so in being these great citizens, you were to have this civil way of carrying yourself, and, but it ended up going to pretty much to oblivion. And the reason why, my friends, is because without the word of God, there is no stabilizing power for the corrupt nature of mankind. And so when the Bible was removed... And you could get a divorce, and you could remarry, and you could get away with all sorts of murder and whatnot. The nation of France financially went down, morally went down. Um, it, it just went, it, it just went nuts. So I'm looking at the French Revolution, and I see that the devil is doing something similar today. But in this sense, this time around, in Revelation chapter 11, the beast came up out of the bottomless pit, but no one was riding that beast. But in Revelation chapter 17, there's a beast that comes up out of the pit, and this time a woman rides the beast. This time, I think the enemy saw that if he removed God altogether, he would lose control too quickly. So now he's going to use a woman, and a woman in Bible prophecy represents the church. He's going to make sure that the church still sits upon the beast, but it's still anti-Bible. It's like this. You remember the story of um, the woman had an issue of blood, and as they're walking into town... The woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and she's made whole. But everybody in the town is pressing around Jesus and touching Jesus. He doesn't even make mention of that. Why am I talking about that in relation to the French Revolution? There are many who profess Jesus, who touch Jesus, who, who say that they're Christians, and in reality have not ever touched the vital force of Jesus in their experience. And so what's happening is, because they have not done this, they are now looking for power from the state, looking for power from civil authorities, because the power of the gospel has not made a change in their true experience. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of grace, that kingdom is present for us now. And we can take advantage of that grace and have that change in our hearts so that that word truly does make a change in our lives. So let me back up. The objective of the French Revolution was to replace the Bible and just have reason as the means of control. And so it is, as I see it now, reason is still the means of control, but we walk around with our Bibles in our arms as if we truly believe the Bible. When we really don't, the commandments clearly say. Fourth one in particular, the one that everyone's forgotten. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy ox, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in the midst, 
and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and holidays. That fourth commandment, that one right there, the one that Christendom has forgotten, that one, that one tells us whether we are truly loyal to God or not. It is a simple test. It is a simple sign. It is not a way to work ourselves to heaven because we can't keep the Sabbath without the grace of God. Just like you can't stop yourself from, from committing adultery without the grace of God. And so the idea is very simple. You can walk around with the Bible and not believe in the scriptures. You can quote the text but not have any power. You can be around Jesus but never receive any grace from him. And so the French Revolution in my mind sets the table on a large scale where the world at large will come out of that bombless pit not believing in scripture, not believing in the word, but will have a form of godliness where they will have a church at the head of this end time movement to bring all the churches and all the states and all the philosophies and all the religions of the world together to battle against God when they think they're doing God a service. The only way to be saved during this time frame, my friends, you must be sanctified and kept by the word of God. And that word is not just a theoretical. It's not just something that you read in a book. It's that that word you've taken and you've allowed it to be in you, to be a part of you. So, yeah, that's the synopsis. You know, my French Revolution talk takes like three hours. So I, I definitely can't go in too deep on that. And we could give a link to the Tacoa website for more information yeah, on, figure that out. on the extensive studies that you have. Sure. I'm um, applying those principles of prophetic observation. Mm -hmm. And you said bad Bible led to this result or a bad interpretation of Bible. Mm -hmm. Is that the reason why there's such a disdain for the Word of God openly from the liberal left here today? Sure. I, I would definitely say that. I, we say liberal left. I say, to me, if I'm an atheist and I look at Christendom at large, I could understand why I would be an atheist, right? It's the hypocrisy that is resounding within Christianity. Uh, you, you can't hide from that. But the question that I would challenge with any atheist or any other a person who would be questioning the validity of Scripture itself, is do you have a problem with the moral virtues of Scripture? What's the problem with the man Jesus? We know without question, whether you're atheist or not, he was a historical figure. In understanding that, this man was the most profound man that ever lived on the planet, and what did he ever do wrong? Just at the, As the person of Jesus, if you look at every religious group, whether it's Muslim, whether it's um, Buddhist, whether it's, um, and no disrespect to Roman Catholicism, but even in Roman Catholicism, Jesus is not even honored as he should be. Um, when you look at all the religious worldviews, why is Jesus under attack? What did he ever do? He was a loving God. He's a loving man. It just baffles me the angst that people have towards the Bible and God, but I understand it comes because of the hypocrisies that are seen within Christianity itself. But that's no excuse. There is no excuse. The Bible says that men are without excuse. God has demonstrated himself through nature and through the things of life that he is evident and that he is there. There's no excuse. But I can understand where they're coming from um, because of bad religion and bad Bible. But there is good religion and there is good Bible. And by God's grace, he is raising up a people in these last hours to reflect the reality of the power of the gospel. One final question. What's the solution for the hypocrisy that our churches suffer through? The solution 
for hypocrisy is first to deal with the hypocrisy within oneself. Hypocrisy, as we understand it, uh, I, I, I'm going to say as we understand it. Let me just say, hypocrisy as I see it is that a man says one thing and he does something else. So, is there hypocrisy in the church? Sure. Um, who makes up the church? Well, we do. People. Is there hypocrisy in me? Yes. I need to deal with that first. And as each individual deals with their personal hypocrisies, then the larger hypocrisies will be dealt with. Uh, and I say that with great simplicity, right? I say that with great simplicity. But in one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. It is beholding the Son of God. It is beholding Jesus. And as you behold him, the reality of what you are becomes extremely evident. The reality of what I am becomes extremely evident. Like, I need help. <laughs> I am crazy. I have these whole views in regards to how people should live, but then I'm living contrary. It's like, yo, Andre, the greatest knowledge that one can have is the knowledge of self. And that knowledge of self comes with the knowledge of God. Without the knowledge of God, no one, I don't care who you are, will ever have a true knowledge of yourself. So the greatest, the best way, the most effectual way to deal with hypocrisy is to deal with yourself and be true with your heart, with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think it's Psalms 139, uh, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way. Is there any wicked way in me? And if there is, lead me in the way everlasting. So that's the best way I can answer that question, my brother. Brother Waller, thank you so much for joining this podcast. It's a great honor. We hope that you could come again soon. <laughs> it's been fun. So can you close us with a word of prayer? Sure. Father in heaven, just want to thank you for your grace and mercy and for the opportunity, Lord, to be able to share. Now, it's been a long time, and I just know, Lord, at the end of the day, you desire to save your people. I pray, Lord, for those who will be hearing and listening to this, that you would reveal your Son to each one of us in such a manner that the things of this world grow strangely dim. Please, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen.